Hello, and welcome to Doc Talk. I am Amy Andrus, Executive Director of the Inland Rivers Ports and Terminals Association. Our acronym, because everyone has one, is IRPT. With me today is Captain Jeff Monroe with the International Association of Maritime and Port Executives, their acronym, IAMPE. Welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you, Amy. Uh, it's going to be great to do this. I'm looking forward to it quite a bit. And uh, yeah, we always have troubles with our acronyms. It's always IAMPI or IMPI or something like that, but uh, such is the way of life. So it's been uh, it's been fascinating and uh, we're looking forward to doing this because there's so many things changing in the industry and uh, trying to just keep up with it. And uh, so I know you've had a lot of interesting challenges on the inland rivers. What does it look like so far this year? Yeah, so it has been quite interesting. We've experienced a supply chain crisis all the way from uh, the ocean dock on the west coast, uh, then um, to the east coast. We've we've experienced um, truck driver shortages and rail congestion. Um, I am happy to say that the the supply chain crisis has not hit the inland river system. We've been operating as normal, a little bit more so than normal. Our tonnage has increased. And our our ports and terminals are open for business and accepting more cargo. Yeah, and it's you know it's it seems like it's been more about the international side than anything else. Obviously, you know issues with China and everything, but you know we experienced last year the highest container rates we've had ever seen. Uh, we also experienced a lot of congestion in the West Coast ports. Uh, and it was interesting that all of a sudden it began to level itself out. We began to see cargo shift, you know, through the Suez Canal versus the Panama Canal. The congestion got alleviated, you know, in um, in Los Angeles and Long Beach. Uh, but then they began to get congestion on the East Coast. So we saw our ships backed up in Savannah and Charleston, New York. Uh, most of that is settled out at this point. Uh, and I think the realization here is that the supply chain was already had broken components to it, all right? And then when this flood of uh, commodities went through it as a result of COVID, uh, that really stressed the entire system out considerably. And so as a result of that, we ran into all these burps. It did, but it also lent to some actually really interesting opportunities. When a lot of our shippers were experiencing, uh, you know, some some supply chain issues at the West Coast and and then rate hikes on the East Coast, some of them were looking at alternative ports of entry into the United States or ports of exit from the United States. And what that did is it allowed the inland river system to absorb some of that, with the shippers looking at different routes to um, to ship the the goods and the commodities. So for example, you know, the ships that were idling off of the West Coast, those could transit through the Panama Canal and call on, you know, our Gulf ports, Houston, Mobile, and New Orleans, uh, utilizing a container on barge structure, uh, because what ended up happening is you had all these sit yards, these storage and transit yards, where a container would come off that ocean vessel and sit, literally, in a sit yard and wait for a truck driver or you know a rail to pick it up. Well, if we could put it directly onto a barge and ship it up into the Midwest, into the heartland, closer to the distribution center, closer closer to where it's actually being consumed, closer to market, 
uh, it would save, it saves the shipper detention and demurrage on that container sitting and waiting. Yeah, certainly uh, the Federal Maritime Commission recognized that. Uh, and of course, the new rules that have come out from the FMC, which really favor shippers uh, more than anybody else, that is certainly uh, going to have an impact. But, you know, a couple of things that have happened on the international side that we've seen, as you know, back uh, last year, we were looking at container rates that were in excess of $11,000, you know, for a move. And that was a worldwide average. Now that worldwide average, uh, as of uh, a couple of days ago, is just you know, slightly above $2,000, which also means that the fuel assessment costs have come down as well. Uh, so uh, we also have a big uh, backup of empties. And I know they've gotten a lot of empties out, but, you know, empties used to be utilized a lot by your agricultural exporters. Uh, and so they would reposition the empties so that they could uh, be refilled with agricargo uh, and then sent out. So I think that uh, even though they tried to get the empties back, now that the rates are dropped, I think we're going to see more of those empties gravitating toward uh, the Midwest. I hope so, because, you know, with that supply chain crisis, our farmers did experience a lot of spoilage because what the shippers were doing was um, because of all the congestion at the coastal ports, they were really kind of demanding that that equipment get right back onto the ship and back overseas, even if it were empty. And so the agriculture was sitting on dock couldn't get into a container and ended up spoiling. So um, I'm glad to hear that the the container lines are becoming a bit more flexible on that. Well, you know, flexibility is a result of conditions. Uh, you know, everybody raced very quickly to build ships. Uh, the carriers were flush with cash. Uh, and so we have a lot of overcapacity right now, which is part of the reason the rates have dropped. Uh, also, too, you know, with this uh, inflation and everything, you know, the commodity purchases have dropped off. Uh, so we're seeing less uh, cargo moving by container. Uh, and I think I think it's finally settled down. Uh, you know, we were looking to see where it was going to sort of stabilize. And uh, it's kind of got there just to about the pre-COVID levels. And I think it's going to stay there for a while. Uh, I think the end result now is we've got to figure out uh, what's going to happen with all this overcapacity. But as inflation sort of ramps down and commodity purchases pick up again, I think uh, we'll see, uh, obviously, uh, this overcapacity sort of disappear. But it's going to take a year or so before that happens. Uh, but we still haven't su solved a lot of the su supply chain issues. Uh, and I think that's going to be a big uh, problem for us right now, because uh, particularly on the international side, and as you know, Amy, only 10 to 12 percent of all the cargo that moves in North America is international. You know, but that it gets all the attention. All right. You know, because things get jammed up and constipated in our ports and in our supply chain system. But uh, I'm hoping that some of the new focus from D.C., uh, is going to be on the development of a policy that really takes into account not only the international, but the inland and all of the domestic operations and stuff. So now you were telling me the other day they've changed things the way the Marine Highway is going to be uh, looked at. Right. So we look at a lot of the funding opportunities that are coming out of Washington right now, whether it be through the IIJA Act or um, the Consolidated Appropriations Act. There's a ton of funding that's coming through that are going to help that's going to help our ports and our terminals uh, increase and invest into the infrastructure so that they can uh, continue 
to grow their offerings. So the Marine Highways Program has typically or historically been one of the programs that offer federal funding assistance to ports and terminals. Uh, I'm excited to see finally that the Marine Highways Program has expanded um, to open up to cargoes for dry bulk and liquid bulk. Historically, that's been for containerized and palletized, basically unitized product only. Well, um, this year, uh, through the NDAA, that program has been expanded um, to include cargoes for dry and liquid bulk. It's also expanded the opportunities to Canada and Mexico. That's going to be huge for a lot of our Great Lakes ports and our Gulf ports that are trading with um, Mexico and Canada. So they can actually look at their, their investment strategy, their long-term um, strategy for their facility and say, you know, if we have um, X, Y, or Z capital investment um, completed, we can increase our throughput, but we need this funding to do so. And so the Maritime, the Marine Highway Program, um, now renamed to be the U.S. Marine Highway Program, um, can help our, our members secure that funding. Yeah, that's always been a challenge for us, particularly up in New England, uh, because, you know, we don't have a lot of ports that generate a huge amounts of cargo up there. So we've kind of connected them um, you know, from Maine and, and Massachusetts, because, you know, Boston's a significant port. Uh, but by being able to connect into places like Halifax and St. John of Brunswick, uh, I think that's going to generate some new opportunities. And of course, as you know, you know, like the Seacorps operation out of Baton Rouge, you know, what really drives and makes marine highway successful is if you have ocean carriers, you know, or uh, who are able to use uh, the barge systems in lieu of using a trucking system, all right? And of course, uh, we're pretty well congested up on the, on the up in the Northeast with the I-95 corridor. Uh, so I think that was a, a very good idea uh, and I'm glad they did that. I know a lot of us had pushed for that for a number of years. Well, and it's important to understand we're not against truckers, right? Because they're ab absolutely crucial to our operations. Um, utilizing the trucking for the first and last mile delivery ensures that we can still deliver goods, right? I've been asked a lot of times, like, aren't the truckers going to be mad? No, actually, for the first time, it, it seems that our our workforce is putting more emphasis on family life. They, um, It used to be the long haul truckers were on the road for days and days at a time missing their families. And in this current kind of environment um, that we're that we're living in, they're putting more emphasis on their family life. So wanting to be home um, at the end of the day uh, and utilizing that kind of river structure where we use utilize the trucking for first and last mile delivery is actually a, a model that's actually attractive now rather than long haul trucking. Obviously, we're not going to be taking eggs on the river, right? Trucking is always going to be needed. Um, there's always going to be like this um you know, emergency kind of transit. We're always going to need that um, immediate and and just very quick way to get our goods. Um, so there's always going to be the need for that long haul trucking. I'm just glad that, you know, we can finally, you know, almost kind of realize and understand, build the relationships with the truckers that can do the first and last mile delivery for, for us. And we can send them home at the end of the day to be with their families. Well, certainly a consideration. And and I think the other side of it, of course, every element of our industry has had difficulty attracting personnel. 
you know, there are lots of jobs available uh, and unfortunately not a lot of people willing to fill them. So, you know, certainly trucking and rail are both our competitors, but they're also our partners. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, the system has to work it work its kinks out. You know, we knew what 15 years ago that we began to see truck driver shortages uh, and we began to see some issues in regards to moving cross-border cargo, particularly with Canada, for example. And so that needs to be adjusted. So sooner or later, and, and why I regard and always push that our federal government needs to have a more effective policy the way Canada and Mexico does, uh, is to be able to look at all the elements. You cannot solve the supply chain issues by looking at one mode of transportation or one element, such as the ports you know, uh, or the inland uh, operations or the rail network or the roadway network. It's got to be done uh, much more from a much higher level. And I'm hoping that- Does Mexico that you... have a, a national straight, uh, national freight strategic plan? I know Canada does. I didn't know Mexico did. Yeah, Mexico actually has. They have a, they have a, a collaborative policy that works very effectively down there. Uh, and, you know, the ports uh, have got a very similar system in regards to not as comprehensive as Canada's, because, as you know, Canada uh, developed as a federal port system, which then got, you know, divested, you know, and maintained a couple of key uh, ports and stuff. But they have a, a pretty decent policy down there in regards to moving cargo and stuff. Um, but uh, the United States, really, we're, we're still thinking modally. Right. And I think this whole issue with the supply chain uh, backup last year uh, drove that point home. Uh, but I'm not sure we've effectively addressed it. And I think your members and our members, you know, and, and the ports that we've taught at and worked with, uh, I think it's incumbent upon them to push their elected officials to try to get a national policy developed. I'd certainly be really interested in learning the successes and challenges that Canada faced with that nationwide port strategy. Some of our members have a statewide port strategy. I think there's pros and cons um, to doing something like that. So I'd be really interested in, in learning more about Canada's policy. And I know that, you know, the Department of Transportation is very interested in a, a nationwide freight policy. Um, back in 2016, they drafted an, um, maybe an interim policy. Um, and it really, really hasn't grown since then. Well, with grant funding now, unless the state has a freight transportation policy, you know, they're not going to wind up getting much money. So we've seen a lot of uh, freight transportation plans come out and then be updated now, which has been a lot more effective for us. But, you know, it's just not always about commodities. Uh, you know, I don't know how many opportunities you might have in the inland rivers, but, you know, we're becoming uh, the largest uh, gas producer. Uh, in the world and are exporting uh, considerable amounts of gas right now. Uh, petroleum exports as well. We remain the, the highest exporter of ultra low sulfur marine diesel fuel. And I think in the long run, that itself is going to open up opportunities. Uh, there are a number of projects and uh, interested parties down through the Gulf of Mexico right now that are looking at developing uh, LNG uh, facilities uh, for export. They're also uh, they're looking at, uh, you know, doing the pipeline export and stuff like that, for example, through the Louisiana offshore oil platform. Um, and then, uh, you know, there, there's port development, which for me, I always look at the thermometers, how many requests for proposals come out. But, you know, like you guys have got two new proposed projects for just handling of containers, you know, in Plaquemine and in New Orleans. Uh, and I think that's going to make a change as well. 
Yeah, and best of luck. You know, I, I hope to see those projects succeed. You talk a lot about crude. Um, we also, you know, if we look at how much crude that we're shipping on the river system, um, for example, a 10-year average of crude petroleum is about 11 billion tons every um, for a 10-year average, right? And then, of course, we divide that by 10. It's 1.1 billion tons of crude. And then of that, 283 million tons is transport is transported on the river system. I look at the next um, commodity on that that top commodity list. Obviously, it's agriculture. A 10 year average is 13.6 billion of that per year. 685 million tons are transporting on the river system. So it's a it's a wonderful um, opportunity for us to increase our throughput, our efficiencies on the river system through capital investment. Are you seeing that the um, grain production and the grain exports are starting to pick up given the issues in Ukraine right now, which, which by the way, has hit the international transportation system, but not as dramatically as a lot of people have thought. It, it has shifted a lot of the ways we do things. But, you know, the demand for grains and uh, food products and agricultural products in a lot of third world nations remains fairly strong. Uh, and I would suspect that I would you would see more of that coming out of the out of your system because, you know, you hit 38 states, you know, so I think that in the long run that that system uh, would start now looking at the aspect of more production of grain, you know, soybeans, you know, distilled uh, dried grains and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. But you, you look at what are the other external factors um, throughout the world that might be competing with us. We look at Brazil, and Brazil's been putting a lot of emphasis on their soybean production. Um, what I'll say is that they don't have the quality of soybean that the United States does, so we're going to continue to be attractive in, in the soybean market. Um, of course, you know, what's happening in Ukraine uh, is affecting the wheat production and the grain production, but also the fertilizer production. So we're looking at more domestic fertilizer production. And there's actually a really great program that came out from DC, a uh, funding program that said, let's explore how we can increase the United States production of fertilizer. And I think that's a great program as well. Yeah, I had seen that, uh, certainly talking with some of your folks out there that uh, there was a lot of imported fertilizer uh, and people had really dropped off on the domestic side, uh, which has made a big difference. So so anyway, I know, uh, you know, we all like to look forward to what's going to happen in uh, 2023. And and of course, as you know, uh, there's nothing we should never think thought short term in our industry. Uh, but uh, I always like to make predictions. But uh, as I've often said, if my predictions were any good, you and I would be enjoying a pina colada in, on our yacht in the Bahamas someplace. So <laughs> that would be Agreed. good. But, uh, I certainly think that we're not going to see a dramatic shift in container rates. I think that's going to remain. Uh, I think we've uh, we've pretty well stabilized in that. And uh, while and I also think that we're not going to see congestion levels right now because there's been a lot of equalization between the West Coast, East Coast and Gulf Coast ports, particularly with um, with container uh, cargo. Uh, but uh, also with uh, I think the automobile production was starting to see that pick up. Uh, and uh, and certainly uh, the export of automobiles now that everybody's got their chips, you know. And uh, the other thing that I think has been fascinating is the amount of military cargo that's moving out of ports. And I know that there's a lot of transfer of military cargo uh, back and forth from U.S. coastal ports 
you know, obviously to Europe and stuff like that. But you also have military cargo moves down the river between various ports as well. Yeah, we've seen a lot of military cargo come out of the Ohio River, out of the Red River in Louisiana. I'm excited that the military is utilizing the river system to mobilize or remobilize uh, some of their their equipment and recognizing that it's a cheaper way to move commodities than the caravans that we typically see on the interstate system. Yes, I agree. And uh, I, you know, what I'm also very interested in is I know there's going to be a lot of competition for, for grant and infrastructure money. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've kind of been paying attention to what's been going on with, uh, with the debt ceiling in the United States, but that most of that grant money has already been utilized or has not been utilized, but it has been authorized. Uh, and uh, so what is, I see you send out to your members on a regular basis, uh, which is a great uh, service to your members about all the various grant programs that are coming out right now. And uh, could you encapsulate those a little bit for us? Yeah, the one that I'm really most excited about is the Port Infrastructure Development Program. Uh, what that did was it, it um, allowed infrastructure funding for obviously for marine terminals, um, but there is a specific set aside for smaller projects. So first year it was funded, it was funded at $41 million. Of the $41 million, $125 million was applied for. That's how much infrastructure investment was needed throughout the Inland River system. So this year when they funded that, uh, it is now, uh, there's $165 million available for port infrastructure at, at the smaller facilities. So we're, we're really excited um, for all of the investment that's being made into the supply chain, the transportation system. Yeah, and I think that what a lot of our uh, ports need to recognize, and, and I know the, the bigger ports do a lot of strategic planning and have great professional grant writers that work with them and stuff like that, uh, or people in the house that do that. And I think that one of the things certainly that the smaller ports need to recognize is strategic planning is a very key factor in getting these grants that people see what the long-term view looks like, you know, and everybody gets focused on master planning. And I think it's because they don't recognize that strategic planning is goal-oriented where master planning is infrastructure-related. And the reality is, is that if you're gonna apply for one of these grants, you really need to have a good picture of where you're headed and not just within the next year, but within the next five or 10 years, you know? And I Absolutely. think that's been a, that's been a big challenge. That, having that plan that identifies short-term versus long-term goals and, and achievements, right? But I think the biggest understanding that would be helpful for my members is to understand because we are smaller facilities, we're also small staffed. So whereas we may have a port director that is in charge of legislative affairs, he's in charge of human resources and IT and operations at the dock, you know, utilizing some of those outside services, um, you know, the, the services like with grant writing, with grant administration, those services are so crucial for my members because it just allows them um, to do so much more at their facilities. Yeah, and you know we have the same issue on on the coastal side. Not to say that we we think differently, but I, on the coastal side, there are a lot of small emerging ports that would like to you know take advantage of grant funding and stuff like that, but don't have a lot of the resources available. One of the trends that I'm seeing that I'm very happy about is that the state DOTs 
are trying to get some of the ports organized, you know, so that they're all working together. You know, there are a couple councils out there already, like the one in Massachusetts and the one in Florida. You know, there's a Gulf uh, Coast Council. And, and the bottom line is that these ports need to work together because they have to come to the recognition that, they're not, yes, they are competing with each other, but they're also competing worldwide. You know, and and nationwide. And the fact of the matter is, if they can kind of put their collective heads together, um, they can operate in many cases like a metropolitan planning office, where the state can utilize and provide funds and using that to match federal funds and have that money distributed and the decisions about how that money is distributed made by the ports themselves. Absolutely. Well, Captain, we're coming to the end of our podcast today. I want to thank you for being my my co-presenter, always appreciate your expertise. Um, I want to encourage everyone to visit the Inland Rivers Ports and Terminals website at IRPT.net to just learn a little bit more about us and what we do and the, the resources that we provide. Yep. And, um, you know, we've been, we continue to train as well. And I'm very pleased that we've done hundreds of your uh, Inland members and stuff. And we have an Inland uh, training program for port managers and executives. And uh, this year we have an active program. We'll be doing one in San Juan, um, you know, at the last week of March, I'm sorry, last week of February, uh, also in Norfolk at the World Trade Center down in um, uh, New Orleans, also uh, at the University of Memphis. Uh, and uh, we've got, uh, we're gonna, we've hit 2,600 alumni worldwide. And one of the key issues we train people on is strategic planning and business development. So hopefully uh, we're seeing a whole new generation of young people like yourself, Amy, you know, oh, who are coming you. up through the <laughs> coming up through the industry uh, and will be the generate next generation who will manage all this. And I'm very happy to see how many people are taking our programs. Sounds great. Well, I hope to um, continue this one on our next Doc Talk. And do you have any ideas what we'll be uh, talking about next time? Well, I'd really like to delve in some of the issues on the Federal Maritime Commission. Uh, because I think uh, the impacts that people need to recognize and really the shift in how the FMC has used to focus on carriers and everything, now the focus is on the shippers. And I think it'll be much to the advantage of a lot of the people who use our ports to understand the fact of the matter is, is that, yeah, you know, if we have congestion or high cost issues, uh, that they have a place to turn to. One of the best ways to grow your business is um, to understand um, the shippers' concerns, right? So yep. I think that's where FMC is really coming from, and I'm excited to talk to you more about that one. Yeah, it's about data, 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 and our ports need to understand, you know, that if they're going to be successful in business development, they need two things. Number one, they need somebody dedicated to gathering data to make decisions, and number two, they need to gather the data, you know, and actually <laughs> actually undertake those efforts. So, and that's part of a strategic planning process. So, well, great. Well, as always, we've always appreciated the partnership with the Inland Rivers Ports and Terminal Association. You are you are our first terminal association partner, uh, which we're very grateful for. And it's been a great partnership over the years. And uh, I know that will continue well into the future. Agreed. Thank you, sir. All right, you take care. And thank you everybody for joining the podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We're going to try to keep these to 30 minutes, uh, and we'll talk to you all again in the near future. Make it a great one.